Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business for this week. We have another amazing entrepreneur on today's program. So this is a gentleman who I have wanted to have on the show literally from the beginning. And I know I say that a lot, and I know I've had some pretty wild and interesting guests on over the last few months, but this guy in particular is fire. He is incredibly outspoken, incredibly passionate. His thoughts and perspectives on entrepreneurship literally smack you in the eyes. And I remember the first time I heard of him was a video, God, it feels like it was a long time ago now, it's got to be at least five years, and it was just so well done and so engaging that it left a a, a sort of a, a memorable mark on me, certainly as I was going through my own entrepreneurial journey. So without holding it back for too much longer, the person I have on today's program is Patrick Bet David. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, I'm pretty sure you've heard the name. If for whatever reason you haven't, do a Google. He has got an amazing story. Now, first and foremost, he he basically came to America, immigrated to America when he was 10 years old with his family because his parents had to flee Iran as refugees during the Iranian Revolution. They eventually got U.S. citizenship. And then after high school, Patrick joined the U.S. military and he served in the 101st Airborne before starting a business career in the financial services industry. And it was after a tenure with a couple of traditional businesses that, you know, he wanted to take a different path. And he launched a business called the PHP Agency, which is an insurance sales marketing and distribution company. And he did all of this before he turned 30. Now, PHP is an amazing company in its own right. It's one of the fastest growing companies in the financial marketplace in the US. But That's not why I've got Patrick on the show today. You see, Patrick is passionate about shaping the next generation of leaders by teaching, as I said before, really thought-provoking perspectives on entrepreneurship and, you know, disrupting the traditional approach to a career. And he does that. His videos are just so, so awesome. And honestly, this stuff has really kind of caught fire. He's got such a buzz sort of in the hearts of entrepreneurs all over the world. And there's one video, it's called The Life of an Entrepreneur in 90 Seconds, which has had something like 30 million views online. And he's even launched a book, which is called The Life of an Entrepreneur in 90 Pages. And, you know, his, his stuff is so educational and inspirational. And he's been considered, or his channel, which is called Valuetainment, which is all around both personal development and entrepreneurship, has been referred to as the best channel for entrepreneurs on the planet. Okay, so I think that's a pretty damn good resume to get on Scale Up Your Business. And today we're going to talk about his new book, which is called Your Next Five Moves. But we're also going to kick off with something a little bit different because not only is um, Patrick a, a an amazing entrepreneur, thought leader in this space, he also gets to interview some really cool people. So without giving it away, the beginning of the episode today, I asked him about his interview with one of my absolute, certainly a legend, someone who's inspired my life 
or up there with probably the top five people certainly in my in my upbringing. So without spoiling that, I'll let Patrick and I get into that shortly. The last message from me before we get into it is if you are liking this and you haven't subscribed, go and subscribe now. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like to listen to scale up your business. It does help out the channel massively. And if you haven't left a review and you're liking the content, then please do so. And equally, if you want to give me feedback, leave a review. I like to read all of those things. So there we have it. As I said, I've been waiting a long time for this conversation and it was so much fun. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Patrick Bet David. Hi, everybody. It's Nick here and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am absolutely delighted today to have with me someone I've wanted to have on this show for some time. In fact, the first time I heard of him, my cousin showed me a picture of a, of a, sorry, a video of him driving around in a red Ferrari. <laughs> and we'll get right into that tonight. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Patrick Bet David. Good to be on with you, man. So that story, I want to kick off with that because it's a bit funny, right? So about, it must have been a decade ago. So my cousin sent me this um, video. It was one of your kind of entertainment, valuetainment videos. And it was a motivational thing about kind of hard work and hustle. And you had this amazing red Ferrari. And I remember seeing that and I was thinking, man, this is really good. And since then, I've kind of thought, you know what, the stuff that you're doing, the value you're adding to entrepreneurs around the world in terms of your message, your motivation has been outstanding. So thank you very much for that. Anytime. Cool. Listen, I want to kick off. Um, you've, ent- you've interviewed some, some amazing people. Um, I've been following your stuff for a while. I want to draw on one person in particular, Kobe Bryant. Um, what, I mean, he, he, basketball has been such a big thing for me in life and, and I've, I've been amazed by, by kind of what's happened. I think we've all been shocked. But, you know, you have one of the most, I think the last most amazing interviews with a guy. Um, what, what, just talk to me about what it was like to interview Kobe and what you learned. So I grew up watching Kobe. I'm an L.A. kid. So growing up in L.A., when he came in uh, to the NBA in 1996, traded for Vlade from the Hornets, we were all looking forward to having him coming down. And then everybody was talking about he's the next Mike, and he had such a big chip on his shoulder to want to prove a point. So stats-wise, statistically, games winning, I was there when he won his last championship, uh, courtside when they beat beat the Celtics. I'm I'm a guy that's a Kobe and a Laker fanatic. So when he came in, prior to the interview, we spent about a good hour, hour and a half together. I was sitting there talking to him. It's so funny, the question he asks, there's about seven, 8,000 people in the audience and we're in a conference room together. Security's there, Secret Service is there because President Bush was there as well and all this stuff. And he says, so do these things make you nervous? I said, no, not at all. I do this all the time. He says, yeah, me neither. When I perform in front of, in front of an audience, I never get nervous. I said, that's cool, man. That's great. I mean, I've been watching you. So we sat and we started talking. Then he went and talked to my six-year-old son for a few minutes. Then he talked to my wife for 15, 20 minutes. Then he started talking to a couple of the employees, just having conversations with them. Then he was teasing people and just joking around with them. And you saw the side without the camera being on the guy. And then when we went up to the interview and went through a lot of the questions that I had myself of how I viewed Shaq, because I think Shaq's one of the most dominant players of all time. You know, I always wondered what Shaq could have been. He could have been the GOAT and been better than Michael and been the greatest. So I asked that one question that got picked up and it got 100 million views is what Shaq would have been if he had your work ethic. And he said he would have been the greatest of all time 
because Shaq was vicious. He was dominant. He pushed people around. And uh, again, it was uh, it was a profound interview that every time I watch it myself, I sit down and I watch the interview myself. Uh, uh, it's it's surreal because I I modeled my game. There's two people I related to in the world of business, in the world of sports. It was MJ and it was Kobe. They held grudges. They remembered anything anybody said, any criticism they ever got, they kept it. They did not want to not hear it. They wanted to hear it and they stored it and they proved the point and they told that person that you said this, here's what I did. You said that in your face. It was almost one of that intensity. Everything in the books that tells you don't be that way. You go, when you win, you got to be this. When you win, they're like, no, we won. I'm telling you in your face, all the smack you talked about, you beat us. There's a certain level of attractiveness to that that most people are afraid of doing because uh, competition can be scary, especially when you lose. So I, I love the interview. I had a great time with him. It's a great conversation. As I said, I, I've followed him for a long time. I've read his book. His work ethic, his thinking around mindset and those principles, I think are the reason I start with that question tonight is because I think it's relevant in business as much as in anything. And do you think then after that, you, know, you mentioned MJ as well, do you think those traits are necessary, that, that sort of that relentlessness. Obviously, the work ethic is there. I get that. But this idea that this winning at all costs almost mentality, this drivenness to, to have these chips, you think that's necessary to be successful? To be successful? No. To be the greatest of all time? Absolutely. There's a big yeah. difference. Let, let me say this. There's a lot of millionaires in the world. There's a lot of kids that went against the odds and made it into the NBA. Many of them. There's many of them that became very good in basketball. There's many of them that won championships. There's many of them that were great players. But to be the alpha of the alphas, the alpha of the alphas, not one of the alphas. You go into a room, I'm in the business world, so I walk into a room and guys will sit there and typically when there's three people in a room, there's an alpha. Then that alpha changes when there's six people in the room, the real alpha shows up, then he all of a sudden is no longer the alpha. This guy's the alpha, he knows it. Then in that room of six, it goes to 12. Then the real alpha shows up. Then this guy is all of a sudden nothing compared to that alpha. So out of the 12, then the next guy, 24, another alpha comes in. And that 12. So the idea is what level of alpha do you want to be? These guys were not wanting to be one of the alphas. They wanted to be the alpha and the omega in the world of basketball. And to do that, you have to be a little bit mentally off. Yeah. Do you think they were great leaders? Uh, it depends on your definition of great leader. If great leader is what you read about in a John Maxwell leadership book, probably not. Uh, if, if, uh, if great leader is what you read about in these Christian books of leadership, probably not. If you consider great leadership when you read and uh, study when Alexander gave that talk to his people when they didn't want to continue the war and they wanted to go home and spend time with their wives and they've been already on the war, uh, on the road for a while, and they wanted to go back. Well, yeah, in that sense, they were great leaders. They were phenomenal leaders. If you compare them to those weird community of people, I made a video this morning titled 23 Lessons I Learned from the Last Dance with Michael Jordan. And one of the things I talked about is my favorite quote of all time is by a German philosopher. I forget his name all the time, but he says, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him. If a lion could speak, we could not understand. Now, what is he saying? If a lion could speak, you know, we could not understand him. People look at Jordan and they listen to him talk or Kobe talk and they say, oh my gosh, 
They're so full of themselves. Oh my gosh, look at these people. Yeah, it's Ludwig Wittgenstein. Got it. It's not about that you don't understand them. They're lions and you are not. And when a lion speaks, that language doesn't, it's like, it's almost like when I first moved to Germany and everybody's speaking German, I have no idea what the hell they were saying. Now, what are these guys talking about? And then I learned the language. I'm like, oh, I understand what you're saying. Then I moved to U.S. I don't speak any English. Oh, what are they talking about? Then you go into the financial world, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, pre you know, investments, mutual funds, annuities, futures, commodities. What are they talking about? Then you learn it. Your world, 10 years, private equity, and you're going in there. What are they talking about? You know, what do you mean quality of earnings? Why do I need to spend $200,000 to have KPMG get my quality of earnings? Who cares about my quality of earnings? Well, you're trying to have an exit. You, they want to see your quality of earnings. <laughs> That's true. But then you learn these languages, right? To understand the language of a lion, you either have to be one or you have to be around one without judging them to understand who they are, whether you want to be one or not. Yeah. No, well, listen, I, I look at it and I kind of think, you know, because you're right. If you look at the textbooks on leadership and you kind of look at some of those things, there's lots of different, you know, it's, it's one of the most, I think, ambiguous and, and misunderstood terms, right? But you look at sort of the results in the sporting world, like we've just spoken about, you see the results. You don't see the aftermath. I mean, the last, the last dance is a fantastic show because it shows you everything that happened on the outside. It shows you the, the, you know, the belts and braces of it all, but the results speak for themselves. Absolutely. Well, no let's problem. get into you, you, Patrick, because I mean, your story is amazing, right? You know, and, and where I want to kind of get into, obviously you had to leave Iran at a young age. Um, you left through the revolution and you've now got one of the fastest growing uh, financial services businesses in the US. Just tell us this story. So how do you go from that challenge, that struggle, to being so successful in the world of entrepreneurship? Uh, how do you? I think for me, uh, it's, uh, life is either intentional or accidental, big decisions that you make in your life. Some of it okay. is by choice, some of it is by force. So I am a party guy when I get out of the military and I'm thinking about being a bodybuilder. I want to be Mr. Olympia. So I want to look like this guy. <laughs> this is what I want to look like. Okay, the Incredible Hulk is who I want to look like. So I'm partying, I'm at the gym, I'm going to the nightclubs, I'm doing all that stuff, and I look massive. I'm 6'5", 240, I got the muscles, I got the traps, I got the biceps, and I want to go that route to be a Hollywood star and eventually be a governor and marry a Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much the playbook of what Arnold did except as a Middle Eastern. Yep. So I go to a Mr. Olympia competition hoping to meet the right people that are going to tell me what things I need to do to be able to compete for Mr. Olympia. I go there, I realize very quickly, this is not the life I'm going to live. Bodybuilding is just not the life I'm going to live. I met a girl named Jean-Vierre who worked at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, and her and I started dating when I met her at Venice Beach. And she'd always pick me up in a different car, and I'd say, how do you make your money? She says, I'm a broker at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. I said, I want to be a broker. She says, well, you got to have a four-year degree because their prerequisite is a degree. I said, I'm not going to school. She went to UCLA. She says, they're not going to hire you. I said, let me see what I can do. I uh, made a resume with the cover letter being a joke on it, and I faxed that to 100 different places. I even sent it to Goldman Sachs. Goldman would never hire a person like me. I sent it to Smith Barney, you know, Morgan, Merrill, everybody. I sent it to everybody. I got 30 callbacks. 15 of them loved my jokes. 15 of them offered me an interview. Out of my 15 interviews, I got three job offers. I took Morgan Stanley Dean Witter day before uh, 9-11 is when I started working at Morgan Stanley Dean with a Glendale. Got my series 766, 3126, life and health. Business got started, but I'm still partying. I'm still like chasing women. I'm still going to a nightclub six days a week. 
And then I leave Morgan and I focus more on the variable and the insurance side. And I'm going, I'm doing okay for myself, 23 years old, boom. My dad has a heart attack, massive heart attack. I'm at UCLA Medical Center in LA and I go upstairs and I lose it because they're not coming to take care of my dad. They're taking their time. And I go up and I start really making a scene. They call the security, they call the cops, they kick me out of the place. And a lady told me the most profound thing. She said, you know, you don't realize this is free. Taxpayers are paying for this. You don't have health insurance. You're not like somebody who's paying for this. You're not paying nothing for this. You don't get to choose what kind of service somebody gets. So I went downstairs. I sat in my car. That whole scene you saw in that one video with the life of an entrepreneur when I'm holding the steering wheel, that scene was a reenactment of that night in my Ford Focus. I'm crying like a little baby. And I told myself that day. I said, my dad is going to die of a natural cause, not because of stress over finances, which is exactly what he was going through. Got up the next day, started working. The look on my face changed with my eyes, and the rest is history. I literally said to myself, I'm not stopping until I make millions and no one can tell me what to do. I want to be able to control the narrative and do whatever I want to do with my life, and I want to take care of my dad. Obviously, the rest is history from there, 23, 24 years old. I stopped partying. I stopped going to clubs. I told my friends, don't call me. I told all my girlfriends, don't call me anymore. I literally became obsessed about winning. Wow. Okay. And, and what happened from there? So you just, you just went to work. You got to work, every opportunity. Did yeah. you stay at Morgan Stanley then or did you decide then I'm going to go off and do my own thing? No, I went to Transamerica first. I made my first million in uh, Transamerica. And in October of 2009, I left and I started my own insurance company with 66 agents out of Northridge, California. And we grew that from 66 agents. I was in LA at that time. I'm in Dallas now. We moved here four and a half years ago. Today, we have 15,000 agents in 49 states. We have probably a half a million square feet of office space. We're going to sell somewhere around 10,000 insurance policies this month. And we're the fastest growing uh, uh, field marketing organization as far as insurance licensed agents in all of America. So this is the PHP agency is your business? That's the PHP agency, yes, with De La Hoya as my investors and Gabriel Brenner, yes. Fantastic. Okay, I was listening to, to you speak the other day, and, and I know that this coming year, I think, is 20 years. 20 yes. years started. And I heard you say something really fascinating. You said that you have these 20 year cycles. Cause I, cause my natural thinking is, you know, you built this business. Why didn't you sell it before? <laughs> yep. So take me through that thinking. Yeah. So, you know, I think life breaks down into four different twenties. Uh, you know, it's funny. I wrote this book, your next five moves, uh, yeah. you know, which uh, uh, is number one on uh, uh, Amazon right now for new uh, books for entrepreneurs. I wrote this book specifically because Everything I look at people, I think a lot of times people have the right vision in mind, but their sequencing sucks. And here's what I mean by it. Mm-hmm. They have the right intention. They have the right ideas, but they make move number 19 at move number four and it costs them everything. So for me, I sat there and this whole conversation about passion, should I do what I love or should I do what makes me money? What should I do? Uh, if you chase your passion, you know, you'll be happier than ever before. And these are people that go around, uh, uh, you know, uh, acting as if utopia exists and there's flying unicorns from the movie, you know, uh, Neverland or whatever it is, just flying over and all. It's just a beautiful place and all this other stuff. It's not how it works. I got a lot of weird passions. I probably am not going to become very wealthy playing backgammon. I love playing backgammon. I'm probably not going to do as much as I want to do right off the bat if I want to go make movies because I don't have money yet to do at the beginning when I was 24 years old. I probably can't go build a media company at 24 years old 
uh, uh, because if I do, I'm going to have to go and do it the wrong way and I'll be in control with somebody else will control me. I'd much rather go make my money first because I think the one thing you got to do, uh, if you ever read the book 41, the Bush family had a very simple principle. They said, first, make your money, protect your wife and your kids, set aside retirement for yourself, set aside retirement for your wife, take care of your kids with school and everything else you need to do for them. And then from there on, decide whether you want to go make more money with business or go into public service, okay? So you look at the Kennedy's playbook, you look at the Vanderbilt's playbook, you look at all these different families' playbook, there is a trend. So for me, step number one was, the first 20 years, just make sure you don't do anything stupid, meaning from the day you're born to 20. Learn, make mistakes, date, befriend people, go around, just don't make the big mistakes uh, in your first 20 years. Second 20 years, if you're lucky, find an industry that you can go and lock onto for 20 years and work with the best of the best, shadow that person, get to a point where that person needs you desperately, ask for equity. If they say no, go be a competitor. Very simple uh, options that you have on what the play is going to be. So that's what I did. And then I said 20 years, financial industry. So my 20th year is coming up next year, and I'm going to give my 20 years to this business. I'll have my exit. And then after that, the next play is running in an industry for 20 years that's around my passion to monetize. But okay. now I'm sitting on a couple hundred million, so I can choose what I want to do next. And this one's going to be very exciting to play ball. And in the last 20 years, it's going to be politics and sports. That's when you're playing uh, where you own a sports team or you're involved in some kind of an or sports team management ownership. And if you want to choose to do something with uh, you know, office or help somebody else campaign, you'll do that. So that's kind of how I broke down the 420 years. So you've just articulated a lifetime vision pretty well. Yeah, I mean, if, I, if, if uh, the man upstairs keeps me healthy, it's going to be a good movie the next 40 years. The reason I bring that up is, I mean, I work with, with, with obviously lots of different businesses that are trying to go through various stages of growth, right? And I often say that the bottleneck is the person running it, you know, partly because they, they get in their own heads, they start to fear things, they start to doubt, and a lot of them lose vision, right? So they can't even see three to five years in front of them, let alone, yeah. you know, 60 years like you just did. Did you get anyone helping you with that? Was anyone mentoring you with that? Or did you just come up with this stuff just, just by the exposure in, in what you were going through? No, nobody helped me with that. But now I got to tell you, I've read 1500 books. So I'm sure in the process of reading books, things are, you know, sticking. Like if you go to my website and you see my 52 books, every entrepreneur ought to read, those books have had a lot of impact in my life. And to the point where even my office here, my bookshelf says read. You know, if you look at that bookshelf, that bookshelf says read right there. I got a lot of books that I read because I'm constantly trying to devour books. And if I'm studying PE, I'm studying Schwartzman. I'm studying uh, Draper. I'm studying the Dalios of the world. I'm studying these guys that are in that world because that's my next topic that I'm going through, right? So, uh, no, no one's really given me those things. Uh, I've always been big on, if there's one strength that I have, I always uh, was the dreamer. And I would see things. What if we did this? And what if we did that? I was always the guy that I would walk with my classmates and I would tell them, imagine if one day we could do this. You know, if you had a choice between being the most powerful man in the world, you're the president. If you were the richest man in the world, if you were Michael Jordan, or if you were a Hollywood star, the number one actor in the world, which one would you choose? I'd want to be the president. Why president? I'd want to be the billionaire. Why not Michael Jordan? Everybody comes to watch you. Why not? The it was always that. So that always was... Uh, messing with the head of thinking then eventually what do you want to do and and the biggest part in this book 
of your five next moves, the first part of this uh, the book is is to uh, 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 which which is something that so often everybody sits around and is thinking, what should we do uh, with myself? Well, tell me how to become a millionaire and all this other stuff. The first move out of the five is master knowing yourself. And when I say knowing yourself, is your next moves, meaning who do you want to be? Do you want to be an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur, an influencer, a number three in a company, a number five in a company, an investor, an inventor? What do you want to do? What kind of a life do you want to live? Do you want to be a millionaire? Do you want to be a billionaire? Do you just want to have a peaceful life, not a lot of pressure, not in the limelight, just kind of behind the scenes that no one knows your name, but you have a good life and there's no pressure. You can go to the market. No one's talk, talking to you. Or do you like the heat? Do you like the controversy? Do you want to be in there? Do you want people calling you out? Which one do you want to be? Then the next one is the ability to reason, which I believe is a number one skill set is to learn how to reason. I've not met a billionaire or a leader of a massive empire that doesn't have a strength of reasoning. Today I was having a, the, the four AIG. This is our seventh call together. I'm recruiting him to replace me to be the CEO here. Seventh call. Okay. This is a man that ran a $150 billion company. Every time we have calls together, you should hear the conversation. It's all reasoning. Reasoning. What if this happens? Why are you replacing yourself? What makes you think I could do it? Why would you go after a person like me? What would be a concern of yours bringing somebody like me? Well, I'd be concerned because sometimes people who are running $150 billion companies, when they come to a world like us, they're too snobby and they lose the customers and the employees. I can totally see that, but what about this? And we were going back and forth, two minds reasoning. And then the next one is learning how to build a team. Then it's skill. And then the last one, unfortunately, is one that very few people learn how to do is the power plays because as you get bigger, as you get bigger, uh, everybody who once liked you, they don't like you anymore because you took the show away from them. Everybody liked us when we were a YouTube channel with 5,000 subs. Oh, Patrick is so awesome. You know, now you get some weird messages that come in. Everybody liked our insurance agency when I had one office. We are such believers of Patrick Bed David. Today, you know, we get weird letters and weird people contacting us. So you, but eventually one has to make a decision. Do you want to go big or do you want to be, go small? So when I asked you, when you asked me the question earlier and you said, you know, does uh, the key to success, does it mean being relentless? I asked you, I said, how big do you want to go? Do you want to be one of the great ones? Do you want to be great or do you want to be the greatest? The level of madness is different. So for me, when I sat there, I was 25 years old. I went to a Christmas party with my dad. To his family, they're Assyrian, lots of proud Assyrians. Um, they kind of look down on my dad. i never forget the scene. They kind of talk to my dad like, yeah, okay, Gabriel, yeah, like this. And I, I went there and I snapped. And my dad doesn't like it when I snap. And I said, I'm sorry, who are you talking to like that again? And I'm 25 and I'm, I'm, I'm a my short fuse. I'm, I'm, I'm calm today compared to my 25-year-old. I said, who are you talking to like that? And the guy starts laughing. This is an uncle. I said, who are you talking to like that? You're talking to my dad like that? No, no, it's just a joke. I said, you don't joke like that. Well, my dad, I don't, not around me. You're not going to do it around me. My dad's like, this is my family. Don't talk to my family. I said, I said, I'm not staying at this party. We're leaving this party right now. I'm never coming back unless if you decide to never disrespect my family again. We left. I got in the car. I screamed at my dad for 30 minutes. I said, dad, nobody talks to us like this again. You helped that man so much. He has no right to talk to you like that. What's funny is I had a family meeting at 25. I'm a nobody at this point. I'm making $100,000 a year income. You wouldn't know who I was. The only people that knew who I was was within a 10-mile radius. I had ran into other competitors replacing insurance policies, New York Life, Farmer State Farm. I'm like a local agent that people know. 
I sat my family down. I said, let me put it together this way. No one knows about David's family. Before I die, the world's going to know your last name, Dad. They're going to know who we are. I promise you. I make that promise to you. When we walk in, everybody stops. See, that to me, I didn't have that before. Sometimes it takes an insult. Sometimes it takes somebody to push you around and bully you a little bit where you decide at that moment you're going to cave in and you're just kind of going to be like, oh, okay, we're so sorry. You're going to say, not going to happen. You've There's two things you, I teach my kids. Two, two inflection points there, which have basically, basically pivoted or, if anything, ignited what you're doing there. I mean, because I often no say, actually, do you know what, right? You know, the p- people who live in mediocrity, right, who don't have too much pain or too much pleasure on either side, just stay in mediocrity. Sometimes you've got to be taken to that pit of despair before it gives you that jolt. Absolutely, Nick. And I massively Absolutely. do that. And you know, it's interesting what you said there. So your first thing was about how can I make sure my, you know, my, you know, my dad, my, my family don't have this struggle with finances. But then there's this different thing. So now, you know, I get it. You want to create something much bigger, right? Ignited by, was it ignited just by that conversation? It was a series of things. I had a relationship I was at that didn't work out. You know, she left me. I was 24 years old, broke, 49,000. You know, the whole story, you know, yeah. the, the not having any finances in place. But, you know, it, all of that, like bullying. Look, my kid, every day they swap on who comes to work, especially right now with everything being shut down. One day's my oldest, one day's my youngest. They come in, I got a basketball court back here. Each of them needs to shoot 104 shots a day. Awesome. The oldest reads 20 pages. Uh, the oldest reads 40 pages. The youngest reads 20 pages. And they read a documentary of my choosing. Uh, they're both on number nine of The Last Dance. I'll finish it off this weekend, and I'll go to the next documentary that they watch, right? When I sit my kids down, and I teach them about our values and principles of our family. I say we lead, we respect, we improve, we love. And when we pray, we pray for courage, wisdom, tolerance, understanding. Set that aside. The one thing I tell them, I said, the bad Davids, we don't bully people. We don't bully people. So, okay. I said, but there's a part two to it. What's that? We don't get bullied. It's very simple. If a bully bullies you, you bully him back. This whole bullshit about love on him, <laughs> not in my world. You decide to bully the bad Davids, we're going to bully you back. You're going to stand up. So if the older son bullies his brother, the younger brother is instructed to stand up for himself. If the younger son, who's more muscular now, bullies the older son, the older son is instructed to stand up for himself. If somebody touches their sister or says anything to their sister at the park, they have been instructed to protect each other. That's the bad David family. If somebody does anything to your mother or disrespects your mother, who's the nicest person you'll meet in your life, Nobody talks to your mother, but you don't call anybody out if they don't say anything to you. You don't go around bullying people. It's a very simple philosophy that we have as a family. Some people say, I don't agree with you. I, listen, I, I may be wrong. We'll find out 40, 50 years from now if my philosophies are right or wrong. I'll do the testing. What you've described there is standards, Patrick, you know, standards of living, you know. And actually, I think people who actually have defined standards, principles, values, beliefs, all of those sort of things, Tend to tend to get what they want and help other people more than people who don't, because most people coast, right? So the question I've got though, as you describe that, do those same beliefs, principles, values, do you, do you take them into work? Are they the same things that you expect from your employees and your businesses? Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how much it bleeds into our business. A hundred percent. Yeah, I say often that the person you are at home is the same person you. If you're going to be authentic, it's the same person who shows up. You can't change that. I want to get a little bit more into the book if we can, because you you sort of glanced over a couple of chapters there. And one chapter was scale, (laughs) which, you know, again, is the topic of this podcast. 
So to get a bit practical for a second, so what, what do you think about when you think about scale, when you talk about scale? How do you do it? What are your beliefs behind it? And, and what have you written about it in the book? It's, it's a great question. When I think about the word scale, I think about formulas. It's that simple for me. All I think about is formula, meaning when I sit with a bodybuilder and I'm interviewing a Dorian Yates or a Ronnie Coleman or somebody that's won Mr. Olympia so many times, I'll say, give me the formula, the most optimum formula for being Mr. Olympia. And they'll say, and I'll say, what's more important, diets, you know, genetics, all this. They'll say, number one is genetics. If you don't have genetics, it doesn't matter what you do. Number one, you have to have good genetics. Great. Number two is what you put through your body, okay? And your diet, the drugs, because that's also part of it. These guys are Mr. Olympia people, so they talk openly. Number three is your training routine you do, and then it's your work ethic. If you get those four things in, down, you know, in place, then you can win. But first place is what? Genetics. If you don't have the genes, kiss a goodbye. So I'm 6'5". No one's ever won Mr. Olympia being 6'5". The good height for Mr. Olympia is 5'8 to 5'10". That's a prime Especially today, not when uh, Arnold competed. The, that he was six two and a half. He was six two, yeah. He's six six two and a half, but that's yeah. in the seventies. Today, everybody's so, you know, on GH and all these other drugs that they use. Arnold didn't have to be that big. He was only two forty five. Two forty five, six two and a half will never win Mr. Olympia today. Today, it's like three hundred ten pounds at six two and a half. So that's too much pressure on your heart. So for me, scaling is all math. So if you ever seen the movie Moneyball, I don't know if you've seen the movie Moneyball the movie, with Billy Bean and Brad Pitt. Oh, I love it. One of my favorite films. Then perfect. That to me is scaling. It's very simple. He took, it took him years to realize the number one most important data is on-base percentage, right? In every business, the leader and the founder of that company, they think what they have as the number one most important data point or behavior it could be seven different things, but one person is going to be right. So for me, any business I go into, if I sit with a pharmaceutical company and they come and they ask me to do consulting with them, first thing I say is let's, let's write the formulas on the board. What do you mean? What behavior produces what that eventually produces revenue? What is it? So we go backwards. Well, to get the revenue, we get it from this kinds of customers. Okay, what does your customer look like? Like this. Where do you get your customers? Like this. Who, what source brings your best customers? Oh, out of these seven, I would say this one's the best one. Okay, great. How do you find more of this one? Oh, we typically find them through this. Okay, how much money can you put to find this? So then I lay out the formula and I say, why are you wasting this much of your money, $3.8 million putting money here, that this one here with $2 million, you're getting better results than this 3.8? We've never thought about that before. Well, maybe you got to pump it up there to see if that's... So everything to me about scaling is all mathematical formula. Once you figure out the formula, then you need a strong driver to drive that formula. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of the people, because I mean, I've worked at some businesses where they were so intentional. I mean, I worked at a business called Getty Images for a number of years where it took something like 10 interviews to get in that place. And they used to say there was only 10 people who thought strategically, and that was the sort of board. And then there was everyone else was like, get stuff done at a high level. Is that how, do you have a, a, a principle that like runs through your hiring as well around this in your business? Meaning what kind of people we hire here? Yeah. In which sense? Are you asking like a cultural talent? If cultural and behaviors as opposed to technical ability. So, you okay. know, someone who's someone who just like loves working hard and getting stuff done, for example, versus someone who's uber intelligent. So that's a great question you asked. So here's what we did. Here's what we did. For the longest time, I'll tell you what mistake we made. For the longest time, 
I wanted to hire talent that was like, oh my gosh, if we bring that guy on board, he's amazing. So we would compromise our culture to make it fit for him or her. Mm. And that was disastrous. So we had a hard time saying no, even though they looked perfect. And, and anybody would be so glad to get somebody like this, but they came in and they were just a massive level of friction with fitting into the culture. And every time they would come in, they just wanted to change the culture. So we hired a culture person who came in, cost us a group of money. And what she did is she went and interviewed 26 of our directors and executives and managers and went through, what do you stand for? What is it like working with Patrick? What he, what does he not compromise? And nobody, I could not know whose answers were whose. So when she came and presented all the answers in front of all my C-suite executives and my directors, it was very uncomfortable. I actually got uncomfortable and pissed off with a couple of my guys because I said, who said this and who said that? Which is natural. It's supposed to happen, right? It's supposed to happen. So then I said, if this is how these guys feel, then in my own mind, I said, okay, it's very easy to immediately go like, well, this is what you're doing wrong. Or it could go to, well, this is what we're doing right. You have to be able to go both places because I know many of the consultants will say, well, what are you doing wrong? Well, no one really knows the culture except for the person that's running the culture as a founder. So I sat down and I said, what's produced results? And I wrote it up. I said, what are you not willing to change? And it's a non-negotiable. I wrote them down. I said, what areas are you not an expert at? I wrote them down. I said, I'm willing to look into these areas. I'm not changing this. When I decided I'm not changing this, I had to fire my chief operating officer at the time. I came back and I fired my chief, op chief operating officer because I said, that person is absolutely not on the same page with me. And behind closed doors, she kept talking to other people about how maybe my philosophies don't work at a big company because she came from a bigger company. And I said, we're friends still today. She and I talk regularly, but I just knew it wasn't working out anymore. So we made that adjustment and then we went and brought somebody else. So the moment we started re-recruiting people, here's what we would say. Uh, Nick, at our company, every month, everyone's required to read a book and you're re required to write a paper on it. Uh, and you need to buy the book yourself and you need to take time to write, write the paper on it off hours. Are you comfortable with that? No. Okay, great. Awesome. Listen, man. Thanks for coming down. This is not going to work out. Really? Yes. So it's no longer, now we explain, this is 20 things that we do at our environment. This is how we work. Do you like this? I don't. This isn't the company for you. As qualified as that person may be. So now let's set that aside. Yeah. Having said that, here's the caveat. I learned engineers are very different. So right now we invested a few million dollars into software that we're developing Engineers are not wired the same way as finances or case managers are or sales flow is or salespeople are or VPs are. They're very different. So you have to then realize how certain departments wiring is with the best of the best engineers and how can you still accommodate them and keep them. They're different than everybody else. So there is, this is not a black and white answer. There's a very big gray area in this because if you're just black and white, chop, chop, you're also going to break a lot of things. So we found out what areas are great, and I'm open to those areas of being great. We kept it that way. And everything else that we're not open to compromising, we kept it uh, the way it was, and it's worked out very, very well for us. 
the last 12 months. <laughs> that is a great answer, mate. I wanted to keep you going on that one because you described very eloquently exactly the di- di- dilemma that a lot of people have when they're kind of trying to scale because you've got the idea of the technical proficient person. You know, a lot of them in the sort of the CTOs of this world could be quite chippy, difficult characters and they kind of just want to go and build stuff. They don't align with values beneath yeah. them. And then you've got people who might align with the values but aren't delivering. And so that's, that's I say, is the struggle of the leader, the struggle of the leadership team is to kind of get that balance right. Yeah, very cool. Listen, I'd like to, to finish a little bit on, on the current environment if we can. So as much as I, I'm not a big believer in, in kind of, um, you know, worrying too much about what's happening, I, I like to be present, but I also like to kind of take action and get stuff done. A lot of people I advise to do that, you know, are in that camp. But we are going through a pretty challenging time, and I know that your business has done pretty well through this time. So first and foremost, what have you been doing that's allowed that? What have you facilitated personally as a leader and what have you put in place in your business? And what advice do you have for people that are going through this uncertainty at the moment? Obviously, there's two parts to that. So I'll give you some time to answer both. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So look, everybody's going to fall into three different categories business-wise. Those that are going to shut down, those that are barely going to survive, and those that are going to come out bigger. It's that simple. You're going to shut down, survive, come out even stronger. So let's unpack what that really means and uh, 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 you know how you break down those three different categories. Those that shut down, those companies that shut down, they don't all shut down for the same reasons. Let's unpack that. There are those that are gonna shut down because they pivot too late. They took too, time, too long to pivot. You're done, you're toast, you're gonna to be out of business. You, you didn't adjust immediately to find a way to sell a new product or service or uh, uh, add Zoom to your technology and you moved too slow, you were too scared, you were too afraid, you didn't have the money in, in place, you didn't have the right savings, you made bad choices six, 12, 24 months prior to this and you invested into certain things you shouldn't have done. And so a lot of the reasons why some businesses went out of business is because the choices they made the last 24 months. There's nothing we, really we can do about that. So I feel bad for them, but you got to make sure you, when, you're, when you're going out there to attack, when I say cash is king when you're running a business, cash is king. I understand when Ray Dalio and some of these other guys say cash is not king. Warren Buffett is sitting on $135 billion of cash right now, and he sold, he had 10% shares in four different major airlines. He sold all of them, all of them, right? Where today... Zoom is worth $48.4 billion, more than the top seven airlines combined. Let me say that again. Wow. $48.4 billion is worth more than the top seven airlines combined, which is $46.3 billion. So you think about that, the shutting down. Some of them are, got what they got because of bad decisions they made in the past. Some of them are going to go out of business because they moved too slow. Some of them are going to go out of business because they just need to go out of business. Meaning, certain business models I would not reinvest in or invest in today. And what do I mean by this? You know, a guy asked me a question. He says, because we were having a board meeting. I'm in L.A. two months ago when this is just getting started, the coronavirus. And my 72-year-old board member, who was a former CEO president of Hartford, canceled to come to L.A. to meet with De La Hoya and all the guys. I'm in L.A. I'm with my wife and three kids and my nanny. We're staying at Beverly Hills Hilton. At the meeting, we're going to take our kids to Universal. He canceled. Then my uh, um, managing director, who raised the money, and he brought it all together, Greg, he cancels. He says, I'm canceling. I said, why not? He says, I'm in Greenwich. If I come to LA, I have to visit my parents, and they're in their 70s. I'm not going to go visit them because what if on the plane I get coronavirus and I give it to them? I'm like, oh, my gosh, people are so afraid. And I sat there. 
babe, we can't stay here. Why? At 78, my mom's 75. I'm not going to go to a park because the parks are shutting down. Disney's shutting down. The NBA shut down. NHL shut down. We got to go back. Okay. We made a decision. We lost a few thousand dollars of all the hotels, everything. We came back to Dallas. When I came back to Dallas, first thing I did is I spent two days reading every article, everything I can on coronavirus, on COVID-19, everything on how bad it could be, all the predictive analytics. Oh, it's going to double this many every four cases, every four days, seven days, 10 days. Here's how bad it can be. Here's how good it can be. The comparisons of the SARS and all this other stuff. Then I went and researched to see how the market did six months later, 12 months later with the last top 10 pandemics we've ever had in the last 100 years. And I went and noticed the only pandemic ever that 12 months later, the market tanked was AIDS. Everything else recovered uh, from the pandemic uh, 12 months later, everything except one, which was AIDS. Okay, so I went and looked at a whole thing about pandemic. Is it a scare? What's going on? People overreact. And then, okay. But the difference between this pandemic was what? All the other pandemics, nobody shut down the state when AIDS came, came out. Nobody said we're shutting everything down. Everybody kind of went with herd immunity, which is Boris Johnson, your guy, that followed, right? He was somebody that said, we're going to do herd immunity. Everybody's followed herd, herd immunity. When I noticed, Nick, how much influence the media had to put panic into people and different government officials, statewide and federal level, I told myself, every business moving forward has to make sure they become pandemic proof. And not because they become pandemic proof. You have to become government official and media proof. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to everybody because it makes perfect sense. Okay. Listen, I've done I've done a few episodes on particularly the media piece. I advise people not to listen to it. <laughs> you know, because it can take yeah, you in so the wrong direction so, all the time. So we're so we're on the same page here on with that part. So for me, it was how can you scale your business knowing if these times last forever? Can you hang? Can you hang if these times last forever? No, I can't. I all these other conversations that took place. Okay, that's no problem. Let's continue. So if we know that's where it's at, you either have to figure out a way to pivot and leave the industry. You either have to figure out a way how to create a blue ocean in your industry. Mm -hmm. You either have to figure out a way to bring a new product into your business that's a new service that helps you survive during those times. Or you look at the market and if your industry is not affected by it, you have to look around and say, who is scared? And you buy them out, you acquire, you recruit talent. That's a form of acquiring. And you try to pick up some market share. So I, I, my biggest suggestion to everybody is just assume whatever business you decide to do long term, ask the first question. If the next pandemic happens and they decide to shut down it, because today it's no longer, we're no longer, uh, America is no longer a country of its own. UK is no longer a country of its own. The world is now one country. You know, this whole new world order. I'm not being conspiracy theory. What I mean is like when one decision is made in America, everybody's following suit. So it's more all connected than ever before. Uh, for us, we made those pivots on the insurance side. And last month ended up being our biggest EBITDA month ever, biggest revenue month ever. And this month is by a mile. We've already written more policies and brought on more agents on board this month than we did last May by a mile because we pivoted very early. And what did you do as a leader? Because you must have done something. You must have gone in there and spoke to your management, your teams. You must have really shown up more than perhaps what you normally do. Yeah, so here's what we did. Great question. So I came in. I spent that weekend doing the research. Then the following week, I came and met with my executives and my directors. And I said, here's what we're going to be doing. I said, I want to open up a meeting and talk to all my employees. 
I brought all the employees around. I stood up and I said, ask me any questions you guys want to ask me. What Don't worry about the question. Like, I'm going to be offended. What questions do you have? They start asking questions. I'm pregnant. My wife is a nurse. She's an essential worker. She's supposed to work every day. We have a kid. Who takes care of the kid? What do we do? You can work from home. You can work from home. You can work from home. 80% we sent home. And I told the other guys, I said, I'm going to be working from here. You guys can choose what you want to do. I suggest you come to work. So we came to work. We weren't supposed to, but we came to work. Nobody got fined here, even though we're not a essential necessarily business. We're not essential, but it's a part of it that is essential, but it's not categorically essential. But we came to work. So that's the home office side. Then outside of that, I sat my 16 VPs down on a Zoom and I said to them, what concerns do you have? And they brought it up. And I asked them and I said, here's what I'm not doing. I'm not making any major purchases right now. Don't buy a new watch. Don't buy a new house. Don't buy a new car. Don't buy anything exotic. Don't buy new suits. Don't buy new jewelry. Nothing. Stay tight. Stay cash. Stay stay strong. Then we did three Zooms every week. We typically do one Zoom a month with our VPs per month. And I kind of give them the uh, update of what's going on with the home office. We did three a week. And I had everybody talk to one another on what they're doing with Zooms. Here's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Here's how I'm selling annuities. Here's how I'm, so everybody started cross-pollinating and learning from one another. And some of the VPs that you could tell they're scared, they're not leaving their house, their, their spirit got bigger because the other VPs were not concerned and they, they got a little bit of a boost. Then I started having a Zoom twice a week with my marketing director, it's about 350 of them. And we did that twice a week. And we did that for about four weeks. Four weeks later, we went from the three with the VPs to two a week. I went from two a week with the MDs to one a week. Then I eventually, I brought my Zooms this week to one one. We're only doing one a week. And the opening of every Zoom is, what's on your mind? What questions do you guys have for me? So the more they saw that I wasn't afraid, and the more they saw that I was at the office, I'm not somewhere else. Like, I'm not, this is not a screenshot. This is not, the more they saw this, the more they said, Pat's not afraid. Why am I afraid? If Pat's got more to lose and he's not afraid, why should I be afraid? It gave everybody a certain level of courage and confidence to go play ball. So that's some of the things we did behind closed doors. Yeah, I love that. I say, um, you know, the the two characteristics over this time that that really shine out from a leader is empathy. To understand, you know, the fact that some people are going to be scared. People, People, you know, not to judge it. People, you know, they respond to things in different ways. So you have to understand that. And the second thing is competency. You know, the fact that actually, you know, that I like and look at this person and I believe this person knows, you know, they might not have everything, but they, they know what they're doing and I trust them. And that's important. Cool. Listen, Patrick, it's been awesome having you on the show, man. You know, being very gracious with your time. So I just want to ask, how can the community, how can the scale up um, your business community help you? Uh, here's what I would say. If somebody, this book doesn't come out till August 18th, but I do have a chapter I'm giving away uh, right, cool. the, of the Unix five moves. And this is how you can get it. If you go to the website, yournextfivemoves.com, literally spell out the five, yournextfivemoves.com. And if you buy one copy of the book, we're sending you a chapter pre everybody because uh, that's not coming out till uh, August 18, but you got to buy one book. You buy a book, we'll send a chapter for you to buy, uh, for you to read for now. And then the books will be shipped out on August 18. So if anybody wants to stay close with me, go to yournextfivemoves.com, order a copy, and we'll send you one of the chapters over to you. 
Perfect. We'll put all the links for that in the uh, show notes and I'll put that onto our websites as well so people can buy them through uh, through Amazon from our website and all that stuff, which is great. Um, awesome, mate. Well, Patrick, it's been fantastic having you on the show. And I'm going to just say to all the listeners, also check out your um, your channel, Valuetainment Stuff. I've been watching it for so long. It's amazing. You've given so much to entrepreneurs, both on the entertainment side, but just the message has been great. So thank you on behalf of everybody for that. And thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. 